Okay, well, please turn to Matthew 17. Matthew 17, and we'll be looking at the first uh, first 13 verses this morning as we look at the wonderful passage, the most glorious passage, really, of the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. And uh, you may have noticed in the, our song service, there was a lot of singing about uh, Christ's beauty and his majesty and his glory and his light. And, uh, of course, those things all come through in this passage that we're going to look at together today. Now, we ended last week with, with Jesus' words, if you remember, about, about coming in the glory of his Father. And he made a promise that some of those disciples standing there would not die. They would not taste death until they saw the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And uh, the question we were left with is, what does that refer to? And if you remember, we mentioned that it could be referring to Jesus' resurrection. It could be referring to his ascension. It could be referring to a coming in in judgment, so to speak, when Jerusalem was destroyed um, later on in AD 70. And uh, I think all of those things, it, it may be true to some extent that Jesus might have been referring to this this sort of amalgamation of all these experiences. But uh, I think overwhelmingly in the way that Matthew and Mark and Luke organized their letter, their gospel records, I think overwhelmingly the point is that that promise is connected to what we will see in this passage this morning. And I think it becomes pretty evident. Think about this fact. We have seen over and over again that people were looking for a deliverer, but they were looking for a deliverer in what we might refer to as a a political sense, um, a deliverer in what you could relatively say is a a temporal sense, an earthly sense. And humanly speaking, you you can't blame the people uh, because they were a nation that was under essentially Roman control and influence. And they knew that their freedom was a promise that had been given to them and they desired to be delivered. Now, Jesus came and he is and was that deliverer, but he wasn't the deliverer in exactly the sense that they had looked for, at least not yet. He hadn't overthrown any rulers. He hadn't made a claim for the throne. He he hadn't even stirred up a rebellion or an army. In fact, the closest ones to him were only 12 men, and one of those would fall away. And we saw last week that when Jesus clearly foretold his death, that even the disciples, namely Peter, were not ready to accept what Jesus' deliverance and what his Messiahship looked like. In fact, we learned that any plan that led away from Jesus' death was really a distraction, a distraction that came from the enemy. So when we come to chapter 17, again, which I believe is is a fulfillment in a big way of Jesus' promise in, uh, in verse 28 of the last chapter, I believe that Jesus is showing these men that his kingdom is not something built on human force. It's, it's not something that's meant simply to be on par with the other kingdoms of the world. But rather he shows that his kingdom is something glorious something miraculous, we could even say something otherworldly. Now, this transfiguration account is in Matthew 
Mark, and Luke, and they all give similar details. Of course, here in Matthew 17, and if you want to look later, you can go to Mark 9 and Luke 9. That's where both of the accounts are found in those gospel records. But we'll stick primarily with Matthew for today since that's what we're studying. Now, in one sense, John, the other gospel writer, doesn't record this account, at least not in the same way. But I believe he does record the experience right in his first chapter. Very familiar text, John 1, 14 says this. And the word, which is Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Uh, You see that? We have seen. We have beheld his glory, a kind of glory that could only be God's glory. And we're going to see that in this passage today. Now, Peter, the Apostle Peter, who was one of the disciples who witnessed this, also wrote about this experience. And one who was not only there, but as we'll see, perhaps he had the message of this experience pointed at him. Uh, very sharply, maybe more sharply than the other two disciples. But anyways, Matt already read this, but just a little excerpt from 2 Peter. He says, for when when he, Jesus, received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born born from heaven, for we were with him on that holy mountain. There again, we see a glory, a majestic glory, a voice of honor from God the Father. Uh, This is Peter's synopsis of what we're going to look at today. So let's read then. Matthew 17, beginning in verse number one. And for now, we'll just read through verse number eight. We'll read a little bit more later. Matthew 17, beginning in verse number one. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brothers, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah, talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, They fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Today we see that the most glorious experience that Peter, James, and John ever had proclaimed one message. Listen to the Son of God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll dive into studying these verses. Father, thank you. Thank you for giving us a glimpse of this amazing event. Uh, Thank you that 
you inspired Matthew and Mark and Luke to record it and John and Peter in their own ways remembered it. Lord, it was so vivid to them, so meaningful, so powerful, yet uh, yet the lesson they learned was relatively simple. And I pray that we would be able to learn this lesson as well and exactly what that looks like for us in our day may be slightly different, but the essence, of course, is exactly the same. Lord, for this is Jesus, the same yesterday, today, and forever who we're looking at. And your words, O Father, which again are simple but powerful, may we heed those as well. Lord, use this truth today, apply it to our hearts. Pray that we would understand it and understanding it, Lord, we would know that we're accountable for it, uh, to follow you, to listen and uh, move among us, work in us, even in our hearts, even in our minds, even this hour. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, well, you'll see your outline for this morning is uh, pretty simple. I didn't get too creative. Uh, Verse number one, we see uh, up the mountain and uh, of course, that happens in verse 1 of chapter 17. It says, after six days, uh, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Now, the, the first thing that's interesting here is this phrase, after six days, because that kind of time reference is a little bit rare in Matthew. It's a direct time stamp. And uh, Luke has it too, although he says, It was about eight days later, which, depending on you count, is really not much different. Because if you count the day of and the day after, it's eight days instead of six. So I think they're thinking along the same terms. But either way, we're given a direct time reference back to the last thing that we read or the last passage that we read. And what was that? What was that previous experience that is being referred back to? Well, it was for starters, the revelation that Jesus was the Christ. It was the revelation after that, that Jesus would have to suffer and die and rise again. And then it was the rebuke of Peter. And then the promise that they would see his glorious kingdom before their death. Now, why six days? Why is that important? I don't know how important it is. Some uh, see there a reference to the six days of creation. And uh, maybe that's meant to bring back the idea of, of creation, which of course we know from the rest of scripture, Hebrews particularly and John 1, that Jesus was involved in the creation of the world. And that would reveal a little bit more of his glory and of his God Godhead, so to speak. Some wonder if it has to do with the time between the Day of Atonement and the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles, which may have been going on around this time of year. Um, Those two things may be relevant. They may be true. We can at least say, though, the simplest reason that there is a time reference here is because they want us to know. Matthew and Luke want us to know that this is related directly to what they wrote before. In other words, we read the account of of Peter's great confession of Jesus uh, revealing his death and then rebuking Peter and then this promise. And then they want us to go immediately to this passage and say this is connected to that. This is connected to that. Now, it says they took 
Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain. Again, if you've read through the scriptures and most of you I'm sure have many times, we, we see that Peter, James, and John form somewhat of an inner circle among the disciples. They had experiences that the other nine disciples didn't have. Uh, he took Peter, James, and John to the, the raising of Jairus' daughter, for instance. Uh, he took Peter, James, and John a little further with him in the garden when he prayed, um, things like that. And he takes this inner circle now to perhaps what is the most amazing experience, uh, to see something that would remarkably change their lives. It would change their thinking, I believe. It would alter their expectations. They went up to a high mountain to be by themselves. And uh, we don't know what mountain. It doesn't matter. What matters is it was it was remote enough. It was high enough. There wasn't anything else there. It was just Jesus and Peter and James and John. They went to be alone. In reading this, of course, your mind, at least mine did, goes back to other mountain experiences or mountain passages in Scripture. And there are many of them, too many to name them all, but I think they're relevant. Many of them are relevant when we consider this passage. For instance, you might think first of Mount Moriah, where Abraham took Isaac, his son, up to offer him, as God had said. And while he was in the midst of the act, with a knife in hand, God saved Isaac and gave a substitute sacrifice. And he kept that promise that through Isaac, everyone in the world, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. You might then think of, of Mount Sinai, uh, who, where Moses went up to receive the law and communed with God in a very special way. Mount Sinai, where the law was given and the mountain was shrouded by a cloud of God's presence. And it was such a remarkable experience that the earth shook. And, uh, and the author of Hebrews tells us that Moses trembled for fear. Elijah also went up Mount Sinai to commune with God in a special way. And Elijah also went to another mountain, Mount Carmel, where he prevailed against hundreds of prophets of Baal. If you remember that, they had this little contest where they were going to call down fire from their God to see who was real. And uh, the prophets of Baal went on and on and on all day, and they cut themselves and, and this and that. And Elijah poured a bunch of water on his altar and prayed to God, and God answered. And it devoured the sacrifice, the water, and the altar itself. It was a remarkable display of power. Another mountain. We saw Jesus early in his ministry taken up on a high mountain by Satan to be tempted, a place where Jesus not only overcame that temptation, but also he gave us sort of a, a means to defeat and resist the devil as well through the scripture and through prayer. And then the first great section of Matthew, which we spent quite a while in, is a Sermon on the Mount. And uh, that also recalls a mountaintop experience for the disciples, often referred to as the Mount of Beatitudes. We could go on and on about these different mountains. There would be, of course, one other mountain in Jesus' future, Calvary, which he has already foretold. And in all of these different places on these mountains, there's a display of God's presence 
of his faithfulness, of his authority, whether that was through the giving of the law or giving of uh, the teaching of Jesus, whether it's through the defeat of the false prophets, defeat of Satan's temptation, or whether it's the promise of salvation through a substitute offering. These all point toward Jesus, we could say, and they also point toward lessons that are learned on this mountain where Jesus took Peter, James, and John. Let's go on to verse number two. Now you have to love the simplicity of scripture because it often understates the most amazing things imaginable. Like if you remember when when Jesus walked on water, it simply said he came to them walking on the water. It didn't give any other description. It was as simple as that. Uh, when when Jesus fed the multitudes, it simply said he he took the bread, he blessed it, and he gave it out. And then there was enough for 5,000 men and women and children as well. And uh, here in verse number two, Matthew records again so simply, almost too simple. Our imaginations wish it was maybe more fleshed out. But he simply says he was transfigured before them. Transfigured. Uh, the word there is the word where we get our term metamorphosis. It means a, a change in form. A change in form in front of these disciples that seems to be for their sake, for their learning. He took them up here to be alone so that they could see this. And so nobody else could see it. A change so that they could learn the lesson that would come from this experience. A change not in nature, we might say. It was still Jesus, but a change in how they saw him. Perhaps we could say they saw him for the first time as he truly is and as we will see him one day. The description is that his face shone like the sun. We talked a little bit about Moses. Do you remember the story of Moses uh, when he asked to see the glory of God and God said, nobody can see the fullness of my glory and live. So he hid Moses in the cleft of a rock and he let him see like the afterglow of his glory. And you remember when Moses came to the people, his face was shining because of how bright just the, the afterglow of God's glory was. Well, here Jesus face shines like the sun. And it's not a reflection, so to speak. It's, it's him shining like the sun. When you were a kid, did you ever try to stare at the sun? Not a good idea. Hopefully nobody ever you know, dared you to see how long you could stare at the sun. That's a, that's a game that you lose even if you win. Um, but the sun is incredibly bright. And it's the brightest thing that these writers had to compare this glory to. This was the face of Jesus truly revealed. His clothes, also we read, became white as light. This reminded me of Psalm 104. Listen to this. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O my Lord God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty covering yourself with light as a garment. 
Now, this psalmist wrote that, never having seen something like this, but knowing of God's nature, this is how he imagined it. And, of course, the Holy Spirit gave it to him this way as he was covered with light. And here, Peter, James, and John see Jesus literally clothed with light. Uh, I like the way Luke said it. Luke said his, his appearance, his clothes became whiter than any bleach on earth could make something. And uh, that's a term of unimaginable hyperbole. And sometimes companies use this. You, you, you read an advertisement for laundry detergent or a bleach, and they say it makes your clothes whiter than white, which is, of course, when you know that they've reached to the furthest extent of their advertising. But if there could have been anything whiter than white, it would have been this experience where they saw the true whiteness, the purity, the radiance of the glory of Jesus Christ coming through. This, of course, reminds us of many descriptions of God's nature. In a, in a metaphor, we see this in 1 John where John says, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. That's referring to God's character, his, his light, his purity, his holiness, his, his nature. But in a very real sense, we also can think of times where light actually appeared when God showed himself. Like in the story of the Exodus, where the Lord went before the people in a pillar of cloud. We've seen the cloud. We'll see it again. And by night in a pillar of fire, of light, to give them light. And, of course, we can look to the future as well, where Jesus will be revealed in such glory. If you've been studying through Revelation with us in Sunday school, you'll remember this from chapter 1. In the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest, Listen, his hairs were white like white wool, like snow, his eyes a flame of fire, his feet like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, his voice like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. I think the reason that looking at all this together, Matthew and Mark and Luke choose the word transfigured, which means to change in form, is because this was a change in form, but it was not a change in being. This was the same Jesus with his true glory made visible that had not been seen before in this way. This same Jesus with his awesome brightness shining through. Now, if this experience wasn't, you know, dumbfoundingly awesome in itself, there's another level added, not a better level, but just a different level in verse 3, because we read, and behold, and look, there appeared Moses and Elijah, and they were talking with him. Jesus, Moses, and Elijah having a conversation. Elijah, who was taken up to heaven thousands of years before this. Moses, who was 
died and then the Lord sort of took his body. They never knew where it went, but either way, they were gone from the earth. And now they're here talking with Jesus. And they're having a conversation while Peter, James, and John sit there and probably try to pick up their jaws at what they're seeing. Now, why Moses and Elijah? It could be that Moses and Elijah both had those incredible mountain experiences themselves. Both Moses and Elijah had one on Mount Sinai, Elijah on Mount Carmel, where they experienced the the power, the, the fire even in one sense of God. Maybe it's the fact that there's a prophetic element to their coming. For instance, the people were looking for someone like Moses, and even he wrote this in Deuteronomy 18. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, Moses said, from among you, from among your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. They were looking for someone like Moses. Maybe this was part of that. And the same with Elijah. We've read this before, and Jesus talks much about this. But in Malachi 4, he says, I will send you Elijah the prophet before that great and awesome day of the Lord. Moses and Elijah, though, also had significance in the people's minds because Moses was pretty much synonymous with the first five books of the Old Testament. In fact, we've seen Jesus refer to the Old Testament as by simply saying Moses and the prophets. And we have Moses And Elijah, who though he didn't write one of the books of prophecy, he certainly was the first great oral prophet and perhaps the most revered of all. There's many connections. It might be that both Moses and Elijah faced hostility in their times of ministry like Jesus did. It might be that both of them had a miraculous exit from the earth. Remember, again, Moses, uh, he died, but... The Lord took his body. It says the Lord buried him, which led some people to believe that maybe he never even died. Maybe the Lord just took him up. And Elijah, he was taken up, living in a chariot of fire. Now, either way, in all these things, we can say that both men pointed toward Jesus. And in the other side of the equation, we could say that Jesus fulfills the ministry of of both of them also. And they were talking with him. Now, the curious mind would ask, what were they talking about? If we stick just with Matthew, he doesn't doesn't seem to give us that information, but we can cheat a little bit. And Luke chapter nine tells us they were talking about his departure. He actually uses the word exodus. They were talking about Jesus' exodus from the earth, which had a lot to do with his death, which is interesting because that's exactly what Jesus and his disciples were talking about the last time we saw them, six days earlier. We keep reading. Verse four, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now we see Peter open up his mouth again. And uh, we try not to be hard on Peter, but it just keeps happening for him. 
Lord, it is good that we are here, which means one of two things, maybe both. One, Peter's saying, this is the most amazing experience I've ever had in my life. This is great, Lord. Thank you for this. And it also might mean, and based on what Peter suggests, Lord, I'm glad you brought us here. We can help. I can make three tents for you, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, and we can just camp out up here. Wouldn't that be good, Lord? Of course, Peter's suggestion there to build three tents, uh, temporary shelters. Uh, in Greek, it's it's skeins. That's the word for a temporary tent. But uh, it goes back to the reference of, of sukkahs, which are little tabernacles. And there might be, I can't say it's explicit, there might be a reference here in Peter's mind to the Feast of Tabernacles, which was a harvest time celebration of the Israelites which remembered God's feeding and deliverance and shelter of the Israelites during their 40 years of wilderness wanderings. And Peter might have been thinking, man, if we could just tabernacle here with you, I don't care if it's 40 years. We've got everything we need. We've got Jesus in all his glory. We've got Moses and Elijah. This is great. Let's hang out a while. There may have been an element in Peter's mind of, yeah, This is what we've been looking for, Lord. Something like this. This is what we need. And Peter wanted to preserve that experience. An experience he could could grasp on. He could stay right there. Let's forget about, Lord, the fact that you've got to go to Jerusalem and die. Let's stay up here on this mountain. Isn't this much better than what your idea was? Now, Matthew wastes no words telling us that Peter's idea was dumb. He just gives us the next verse, which says, while he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Well, if you remember last time in verse in chapter 16, Peter was taking Jesus aside and he began to rebuke him. You know, far be it from you, Lord, this will never happen to you. And while he was speaking, Jesus sort of interrupted him and said, get behind me. Well, this time Peter was interrupted again by a bright cloud which overshadowed them. No doubt, this is absolutely meant to recall in the minds of the Bible readers the Shekinah glory of the Lord, the cloud in which his presence dwells and is made known. Uh, We're reminded also of the cloud which he led the Israelites by and the cloud around Mount Sinai at the giving of the law. The cloud is none other than the presence of God the Father in this visible way, And his voice comes right in the middle of Peter's suggestion. And it says, listen to him. That is a very kind way of saying, Peter, shut up and listen. Peter, be quiet. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. 
But Moses and Elijah are here. Listen to him. But this experience, it's, it's so great. We've got to stay. Listen to him. Now, why is it significant for Peter to listen? Well, you may say, well, that's kind of a dumb question, isn't it? Why should we listen to Jesus? He's Jesus. But specifically, why is it significant for Peter to listen to Jesus? Well, Moses and Elijah were talking with Jesus. Again, we learn from Luke about Jesus' departure, his exodus, his death, that he was going to die and rise again. And maybe they were even talking about his his future ascension. But one way or the other, this display of Jesus in his glory, in the brightness of his kingdom and his majesty, was a sign to Peter and his disciples, a sign that, A, all things were under control. God the Father did truly plan this. Even Moses and Elijah were there to give way to what is to happen. And the voice of the Father from heaven is the same one we've heard at the baptism of Jesus. Remember, he said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And this is what he says here of Jesus after he had told the disciples that, yes, I have to die. I'm going to rise again. So take up your cross and follow me. He says, listen to him. My beloved son with whom I am well pleased. That comes from two places. The Lord uses his own word. Uh, Psalm 2, we read, I will tell the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you or today you have become, I have become your father. You are my son. That's the beloved son. And then Isaiah 42, we read this. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my spirit delights, and whom my soul delights, rather. Jesus is the son of God. You are my, this is my beloved son. And God is pleased with him. But what happens to the servant? Isaiah has this whole, if you remember a couple years ago, Isaiah has this whole section of his book that's devoted to this servant. And what happens to that servant? He becomes the suffering servant. The servant who gives his life for the transgressions of the people. This is my beloved son, Peter. Yes, what he says is true. Listen to him. Listen to him. Rather than our own inclinations, rather than our sensibilities, rather than our gut, rather than the intuitions we have, rather than selfish desires and motives, listen to him. Peter, rather than saying, no, Jesus, you'll never die, or rather than saying, well, let's just camp out here and you won't have to face that other stuff. No, listen to him. And the message is to us as well. Listen to him. Now we read on. Verse number seven. Jesus came to them and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. 
the cloud was gone. Moses and Elijah were gone. The glorious appearance, it seems, were gone. But there was Jesus, the same Jesus, the same Jesus who says, I have to die. And the same Jesus who said, take up your cross. It's the same Jesus who was just gloriously transfigured and is now the same Jesus who says, have no fear. Nothing but Jesus. That's what they were left with after this great experience. They saw Jesus alone. Only now they knew a little bit more about him. He hadn't chosen to reveal this kind of experience to them before, but suddenly it was all a little bit sharper in their thinking. Suddenly, maybe his words, it's okay, they were learning. Maybe his words took on a little bit more weight yet again. And they saw him and him alone, which is fine because that's what they needed. That's who they needed. Reminds me of Paul's words to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 2, who said, When I came to you, brothers, I didn't come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with, with lofty speech or wisdom. In other words, I didn't have to compete with my language. I wasn't trying to be flowery or eloquent. I simply wanted to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And this is the lesson of the transfiguration for us. This is what it's about. The kingdom is miraculous and glorious, and it is otherworldly. The cross, the death, and the suffering, they don't erase that. They're part of the plan. Listen to Jesus. It's not plan B. He's not failing. He's doing what God sent him to do. And for us as well, there is a miraculous, a glorious, and otherworldly that is yet to come. But the suffering and the darkness now does not erase that. As we saw a couple weeks ago, the power of death does not erase that. So we too can take up our cross, follow him, and listen to Jesus. Oh, quickly, we finish up this section, and we want to read from on verse 9 through 13. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, don't tell anyone, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. We'll stop there for a second. Uh, this is another, another prohibition. We've seen this a few times. Don't tell anybody about this. Don't tell anybody about this. But this time, there's a there's... There's an expiration date. Jesus says, don't tell anybody until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. After that, it's on. The glory, the experience, the majesty, and the power, they're meant to be proclaimed and told because they will all confirm, and really the resurrection would confirm all of that. Was he who he says he is? Well, he died and rose again. What do you think about that? Now, the disciples still had questions. The disciples asked him, why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that 
Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also in the same way, the son of man will certainly suffer at their hands. And the disciples understood he was talking about John the Baptist. If you're really it, Jesus, if we're to listen to you and we got that message, well, what about Elijah? Why did the scribes say that he's supposed to come before you do? And Jesus tells them in one sense, they're right. The scribes were right. They had it right. Elijah does come. And he has already come in the person of John the Baptist, and they killed him. And in the same way the Son of Man has come, they will kill him. There's a lot we could glean from this, but one little element I think is helpful is that just like Elijah's restoring work that they knew was coming didn't take place fully, John the Baptist came, he preached uh, repentance for the kingdom is at hand. It was a, a baptism leading to repentance. People were, he was making way, making a straight the path for the Lord, but most people rejected him. Well, in the same way, Jesus, the Messiah, came and many rejected him. It's not that the coming didn't happen. It's that the fullness of it hadn't taken place yet. In the same way, Jesus' coming has happened. And his kingdom is real. He just shown them that on the mountain, but the fullness of it is not here yet. There is more to come. There's more to wait for, and it is worth waiting for. God's plan and his ways often appear as, as a maze to us. We sort of, all we can see is the next turn. We can't see the end, but we can trust the Lord Jesus when he says, And he promises that it's not done yet. I want to close with this thought of after the mountain. And we'll get to what took place just after the mountain next week. But I want to think about us and how we can apply this. Because there is a very solid, a very explicit application that Peter gives in that passage we read. For the disciples, the message was to listen to Jesus, to submit to him, to submit to his predictions about his death and resurrection, and to know that the promises are still real. But what does Peter say to the first century believers about this passage? Again, we read, he did, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made to you, made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, we didn't make this story up. But rather, he says, we were eyewitnesses. We saw it with our own eyes when he received honor and glory from the Father. And that voice, which we saw in Matthew 17, this is my beloved son. We ourselves heard this voice born from heaven because we were with him on the holy mountain. In other words, we didn't make up this gospel story to you. We were there when we saw the son of man in his fullness of his glory. And then Peter says something incredible. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention. Now, what is he talking about, this prophetic word? Well, we find out what he's talking about in the end, verse 20 and 21, where he says, knowing first of all that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. 
For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In other words, Peter's saying, you should believe the gospel message. We were eyewitnesses of it. But even above that, you should believe the scriptures because none of those scriptures come from anything that just is conjured up by human beings. None of them come from private interpretations or imaginations, but rather they come from the Holy Spirit of God. And he says, you would do well to pay attention. And dear ones, with us having both the Old and New Testaments given to us, kept for us, we would do well to pay attention to the scripture. It didn't come through men's imagination. It didn't come through cleverly devised myths or fables. And it, it doesn't need to be in, as Paul said, flowery language and in a display of wisdom, but it's from God. You would do well to listen. So in a little different way, but in very much the same way, the message the transfiguration for us is you should listen. Do we submit to the authority of Christ in his word? Do we submit to God in his word? Do we, do we yearn for it like the psalmists speak about? Do we seek after it? Because it is our source of life and truth. Dear one, listen. Listen to the Lord in his word. This is how he speaks. No amount of experience can nullify it. No new revelations can contradict it. Peter and James and John saw the transfiguration, and you know what it confirmed to them? That the scripture was true. We don't need a new revelation. We need to hear and pay attention to what God has already given us. Trust me, there's plenty there. Once you've mastered that, you can ask for more, but that's not going to happen. <laughs> Listen to what he's given you in his word. Heed it. You would do well, Peter says, to pay attention. 